Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we try to populate the news matrix for the week ahead, which is basically a fancy way of saying we try to guess how stuff will develop. I'm Alex Andreu. Joining me this morning is Bunker regular in the Atlantic's Yasmin Serhan. Morning, Yasmin. How are you? Good morning, Alex. Um, I'm great. It's it's the 4th of July, which I only realized as I woke up. So yeah, <laughs> I need to figure out how to be festive from this side of the pond. I know, and we will be discussing in detail the bin fire that is American politics right now. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> but but first, but first, let's let's start closer to home. So sleaze, it has to be the first thing we talk about. Johnson would have been hoping for a big reset last week, you know, with all the international commitments he jetted off to. Instead, he comes back to more allegations of sleaze, more questions about his judgment, and more hostile headlines even from friendly papers. What's this all about, Yasmin? Yeah, so we found out towards the end of last week, Chris Pincher MP has been suspended from the Conservative Party um, after it was reported that he had allegedly groped two people while at a private club. He initially resigned as the Tory deputy chief whip, telling the prime minister in a letter that he had, quote, drank far too much, quote, and embarrassed myself and other people. At first, I think, if if memory serves, Downing Street basically said that no further action was required. He'd resigned, yada, yada. Yep. But then the matter was this- closed. Exactly. But then it came out that this is actually um, potentially a pattern for this particular MP. Um, he had he had actually quit a similar role in 2017 over allegations that he made an unwanted sexual advance. So this seems to be just yet another of kind of the many, many scandals that we've been experiencing over the last two and a half years. And just again, to make it clear that these are allegations, that there may be uh, a, a matters which go to the police and so we don't certainly don't want to influence that process and that Chris Pincher denies them strenuously. I don't think I've suddenly gone more Puritan or paying more attention. There just seems to be a lot of allegations of sort of sexual misconduct, a lot of them involving Tory MPs. I mean, is this is this coming from the top? Is this a toxic masculinity thing? Is this an entitlement thing? Thing is this is this something that happens in pressurized professions? I mean, what what the hell is going on? I mean, I, I think to your point that the sheer spate of the ones we've had, and the Guardian actually has a pretty handy timeline by which I count at least seven of more than a dozen of the, of the recent scandals, dating all the way back to May twenty twenty. Um, the majority of them were sexual assault and harassment allegations. I mean, we only need to remember the last few. We, we had a couple of by-elections um, over them as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's. It, I don't want to say it's just, you know, a, a part of the job or, or a part of the environment because, you know, I, I haven't lived in Britain very long, but I do remember previous governments and there not being nearly as many of of these types of scandals. And you look elsewhere around the world. I mean, I think there is an element of impunity that comes into play here. Um, mm. And and you would think with the number of, of, of resignations, of scandals that we've seen, that perhaps it, it would prompt people to rethink their behavior. But just given the sheer number of them, I mean, you almost start to lose track of them, as I did until I looked at this timeline. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, even just back <laughs> in May, there was the unnamed conservative MP. I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm not sure he was... Um, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Being investigated for rape. Yeah. Exactly. So I, 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 I don't remember. think we're aware. I don't think that name has been um, released, at least not that I saw. Perhaps it's just mm. known um, but by those in, in the know. But um, yeah, I mean, there's just, gosh, there's just so many. And it's, you know, I, I my fear is that there are so many that you almost start to think that actually it's normal, which I mm. think would obviously be, you know, this a huge mistake. I mean, I have to say, I think, generally speaking, behavioral standards have slipped in the last few years by quite a bit. I mean, you see it even in PMQs. They are somehow more animalistic, more primal, more binary. And I I just think maybe that aggression is leaking out in other areas of politicians' lives. I, I, I don't know what's going on. The headlines, as I mentioned, have been quite aggressive towards Johnson, inclu- including from pretty friendly papers. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk during the weekend that maybe he's lost the mail, that maybe there was an internal struggle going on in there. Do you think Johnson can survive losing his friendly press? I mean... It is weird to to even just think, especially as a journalist of of a of a politician having ownership over over an institution. Mm. But of course, mm. knowing that the British press and and sort of particularly the tabloid press and how it works, I mean, I think obviously it is something that is quite significant. As for whether it determines his fate, I mean, I know the Teflon definitely is a bit stick. I mean, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't shield him in the way that it clearly <laughs> used to. He's been marred by so much scandal in recent years and, and sure, surely jetting off for, for a week <laughs> to, to, Rw- to Rwanda and elsewhere um, is, is, is one way of, of kind of avoiding those headlines. But do I think that that, that alone is the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back? No, but I think it is interesting to see whether that lack of support or that diminishing support affects the behavior at all changes mm. downing street's narrative i mean you, you you hear like you think back to all the other things we've seen with, with the no confidence vote with the sue gray report there is a deep desire in the part of number 10 to just kind of say okay this this matter has been settled this matter is yeah settled. yeah they've drawn so many they've drawn so many lines under the matter they're gonna um, need a pencil sharpener yeah, at this point i know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and and i think that is reflected perhaps in senior ministers and cabinet members feeling like they have less cover i mean the monday media round is usually quite a big one you know it's 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 quite a big name, usually, that does the Monday media round. Today, we were treated to Will Quinn's. I mean, no disrespect, but I even I, ask. as a Westminster yeah. <laughs> watcher, had to look up who Will Quinn's is. He's the Minister for Children and Families, and they sent him out, I think, ostensibly on some announcement of a consultation of ratios in nurseries. You know, they, they're planning to increase from four children per nursery worker to five children per nursery worker. But really, I think it, it's just everyone senior not wanting to do the media rounds right now. Uh, Therese Coffey, who did the media rounds yesterday, seemed incredibly uncomfortable. She had to be asked about four times by Sophie Ridge on Sky News to even regurgitate the government line, mm. which was 
and which we saw repeated today, which, which, which is that Johnson was not aware of any serious specific allegations about Chris Pincher. I mean, take that how you will. It seems to me to be quite loyally language. So let's see how that develops. There's a big battle coming this week and definitely something mm. our listeners should look out for. There are the elections to the 1922 committee of backbench conservative MPs, which is incredibly powerful and influential. I'm sure everyone will have heard by now it is the committee that decides the rules for uh, leadership elections that decides when it's received enough letters to call a leadership election, etc. And it's become a little bit of a proxy battle, uh, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's, I think it's it's very much seen as um, certainly am- among, I guess, the, the quote-unquote rebels within the Tory party as, as an opportunity to basically seize control and, and kind of mount a new rebellion against um, Boris Johnson's premiership. Um, they're hoping to, to seize all 18 seats that are up for grabs. And yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting too, because obviously with the no confidence vote um, that we had recently, I know a lot of attention was paid to how many people were on the government payroll, sort of Hmm. how that would swing the vote. But tellingly, I I was reading, and this is something I didn't know before, was that it's only backbenchers who are allowed to vote in the 1922 committee elections. So that's right. um, Yeah, there's going to be certainly more power in their hands, I think, in this respect. Yes, and I, and I also get the sense that even in the confidence v- vote, there were a lot of people that lent their vote to Johnson quite reluctantly, that thought it was too early to push him out mm. right now. And And I think those people are also going to want to have quite critical people in the 1922 committee as a sort of safety valve, because I think even the people who hesitantly supported Johnson in that confidence vote will not want him to feel completely safe and untouchable and impugned in the coming year, which is what the current rules say. So I think they will want quite a rebellious 1922 committee to come in. It will be interesting to see, like I said, it is a bit of a proxy war. And I think we will see how the pro-Johnson, anti-Johnson forces stack up in the Conservative Party now, especially after those two disastrous by-elections. So um, that's something to look out for. Now, don't feel bad, dear listener, um, if, if our own political scene is dis- dysfunctional. <laughs> Look ye across the ocean and despair. Yasmin, what is... I oh. mean, I'd like to ask something more specific than what the hell is going on. But That's a running the theme on this podcast, on? I must say. This is the only <laughs> question I ever prepare for. Um, <laughs> and I never have an answer, which is really annoying. Um, I mean, where do I start? I mean, we, we've, of course, um, we've been having the capital hearings into January. Yes, let's start there. Yeah, let's. So we recently had the blockbuster testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, the 26 year old top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who revealed how then President Donald Trump and his inner circle 
were actually warned about the potential for violence that occurred on January 6th and how, in fact, mm. Trump wanted to join his supporters at the Capitol. Um, according to Hutchinson, the president knew that his supporters were armed, but he still wanted security removed. She said that he said something to the effect of, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. And, and mind you, th these are comments that, according to Hutchinson, he made prior to going to his supporters in a speech and saying, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Um, mm, Hutchinson mm. also said that, um, you know, that there was kind of talk about Trump really wanting to go to the Capitol and even being potentially violent and trying to sort of seize control of the car to get him there. Um, <laughs> all of this, of course, I mean, right, it's, it's, it's pretty surreal. I mean, we all know what it happened. It is surreal. We did watch it occur, but I think what I mean, it is surreal, and yet I have to say it is completely believable. You know, it fits completely with the character of the man we've got to know over the last five, six years. Absolutely. But I, I think what was was interesting and, and what was so damning about her testimony was the fact that even though we watched it, I mean, like myself, I've watched it play out on the television for, for so long, kind of one of the narratives and the talking points that we've heard come out of the Republican Party was that Donald Trump thought this was a peaceful protest, a peaceful demonstration, that they always thought it was peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. And then things yep. got out of hand by a few rogue actors. Hutchinson's testimony completely undermines that by effectively establishing, which is kind of, I think, the, 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 the primary allegation being made towards Donald Trump that he knew and intended for that day to get violent, yeah. to, to undermine American democracy. might mean a bit of legal peril for him down the line, actually, if, especially if more people turn out and support that testimony. I don't follow American polling very closely. Is any of this making a dent in his personal ratings, in the voting intention for the coming midterms, what's going on there? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the big question, right? Like, is any of this going to matter, especially with regard to, you know, how Republicans see this? And according to a recent poll that um, was published by ABC News and Ipsos, there's a slight increase in the percentage of Americans and Republicans who thought Trump should face criminal charges, 58% overall and 19% among Republicans. So there is some impact. That's quite a but, chunk, isn't it? He, oh, I, I, yeah. Almost one in five Republicans is quite a chunk. Yeah, and, and this compares to, um, I think, before when it was just around one in, in 10 um, Republicans mm, who, who mm, thought mm. Trump should be charged in in, um, in April 2022. So, so yeah, I mean, you, you are seeing an impact. I think what, what is going to be interesting, of course, is how this affects the way Republicans see Trump's, elect, Trump's electability um, in 2024, whether he should be running again. And, and of course, in the upcoming midterms, which is another kind of big thing that's happening at the moment in America. We yeah, I mean, I've primaries. seen... I've seen clips of some debates of the primaries, and I have to say some of them are really quite, they're quite a bit wow, in that in quite a lot of them, you get the majority of candidates full-on QAnon conspiracy theories about anything you can think of, including the steal the election stuff. So, so what's happening there? Uh, how are those contests shaping up? Are the Trump-endorsed and Trump-supported candidates, generally speaking, doing well? Or are they behind the sort of saner choices in those primaries? Do we know? 
There are just so many. I think there's like 36 senator races and, and a slew of other kind of state gubernatorial and other state level races happening. I do know Trump has issued quite a lot of endorsements. I think some of them have been successful, others not. I think what's clear, what you're seeing there with those kind of wacky sort of primary clips is is that there are some people who are going quite out of their way um, to to get his endorsement um, and to win his endorsement. I, I think obviously, you know, there's so many races going on right now that it kind of helps to zoom out to the bigger picture um, when looking at America from across the Atlantic. And, and what we know, of course, is that the midterms tend to be bad news for the party in power, especially when you're having a rough economy as we are now, especially when the incumbent president, Joe Biden, um, of course, he's not up for re-election, but when he's as unpopular as he is, that's also seen as kind of an issue. So it's widely expected that the Democrats may lose control of the House, may retain control of the Senate. Mm. That, of course, is a big question. Yeah, on that, might the overturning of Roe v. Wade make a difference in that sense, especially since this this seems to be a sort of an announcement of intent from the Supreme Court that they're going after equal uh, marriage, they're going after same-sex relationships, they're going after contraception next. So could could that fire up the the sort of liberal base into voting, into holding their nose and voting for democratic candidates in the fall? Yeah, you're of course referring to, to Clarence Thomas's wish list, which I mean, I, I certainly yeah. would, would hope that that's n- not um, a view shared by the rest of the justices. But but yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously um, a hope that in the White House that that's the case. I mean, we've heard Biden time and again say that kind of the answer to this is is to vote and, and to vote for Democrats to ensure that this won't happen. He initially refused to endorse rolling back the Senate filibuster in order to pass um, abortion legislation um, at the federal level to sort of restore a national floor for abortion rights. But he shifted Mm -hmm. gears on that and and has now said that he supported it and said that he, I believe he also called um, the abortion ruling destabilizing. So, you know, part of his pitch to voters may be, look, if we want to kind of protect these rights at the national level in law, then you need to vote for us. Whether that works, though, I think remains to be seen. I know that a lot of people who were and of which there were many who were very disappointed by the Supreme Court's decision, Uh, particularly, I think, a lot of young Democrats were sort of bristled at the notion that the answer was to vote. They kind of feel like they have voted and didn't, I I think, certainly at the onset, feel like the White House was necessarily sharing in their outrage. Mm, Um, mm. So I think it's not going to be as simple as kind of counting on the anger of the American people um, to to retain control of the House and the Senate. I think the White House is going to have to work to show that they are going to do what needs to be done. And those are pretty big, like, you know, getting rid of the Senate filibuster is a pretty big thing that up until now Biden has not wanted to do. So whether he actually does change tack on that, even if in only this specific instance with regard to abortion, I think remains to be seen. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people, and and a lot of people are very upset. Even the Supreme Court's own (laughs) approval ratings have have gone down. Um, You know, they're they're very much seen as, uh, even if they're they're not meant to be ruling um, on obviously the popular, like, kind of the popular will of the country. They they are, they've historically been seen as an apolitical institution and they're no longer being seen that way. And I think that's mm, that's mm. a huge problem for their own legitimacy as well. Um, now, closer to home, Starmer uh, is making a speech today on Brexit at long last. Brexit had been reduced to a little bit like uh, the sort of 
the alcoholic uncle at the Labour Party. You know, everyone knows it's a problem, but no one's allowed to talk about it. He's revealing a five-point plan for, and I quote, making Brexit work. Well, at least they're talking about it. So what do you think? Do you think this is directed to voters out there? Or do you think it's directed primarily to voices within the Labour Party, like Sadiq Khan, who have made it clear that they want the policy to go further? Mm, Well, I I suspect it's probably a mix of both, right? Because I think if you're trying to sort of make your pitch for what a Labour government would stand for, I think obviously Brexit is something that's going to come up, especially in the past when the party was seen as the, the ones that would want to relitigate Brexit or, or even bring Britain back into the EU. Um, with this plan, Starmer seems to be trying to draw a line under that um, with, as you yeah. said, the banner to make Brexit work. He's expected to say that he will vow not to take the UK back into the single market, that, that he's going to try to you know put, put some things in place to, to fix the Northern Irish uh, protocol rather than just get rid of it um, as the government mm-hmm. wants to do. Um, and, and so yeah, we're talking about technic- technical measures basically to ease trade friction rather than some big gesture of, you know, rejoining the customs union or something like that. We're talking about tweaking. Yeah. And and I think to, to an extent, I mean, just reading over sort of what's been covered about what he's going to say, I can understand that impulse. You know, in effect, he's effectively saying that, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to move forward and deliver change if we keep relitigating these issues of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think he wants the Labour Party to be seen as the party that's going to drag the country back into this, you know, long and kind of fight that I think a lot of people even perhaps ardent remainers are tired of having as well. So in a way, I think it's it's a bit understandable that he would be making this position. The timing is definitely interesting, sort of why now, but perhaps with everything going on with, with the protocol, um, that might explain it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is that I think it's also a position that takes into account something that's largely un- unacknowledged, I think, by the remain or rejoin forum in this country, that the process of getting closer to Europe again is one that involves two sides. <laughs> and I think the notion that all it takes is for the UK to say, oh, we love you again now, mm. for the for the EU to go, oh, fine, get access to our single market and come into the customs union. I think that that notion is is quite naive. And I think it will take it will take a lot longer than that, and it's a, it's a pro, it will be a process, basically, of rebuilding trust. And I think those kind of technical fringe agreements on veteran, veterinary standards, on mutual recognition of professions, and a little bit of financial services, on data, I think all of that stuff is the bridge that will take us back to a position of trust. And so I know a lot of rejoiners would love um, Starmer to say that ultimately our aim is to rejoin the EU, but I think actually that might be politically damaging. And more than anything, it's unrealistic because, like I said, it doesn't take account of what the other side in this want and how long it will take them to feel like they're in a position to trust the United Kingdom again. Um, But, you know, all all this stuff is a a delicate balance, isn't it? 
Definitely. Also, I mean, if, if you're Ukraine or Moldova, for example, you're probably thinking like, get in line. Like <laughs> you, yeah. it's, um, it's, it's not like this is, uh, as you say, it's, it's, it's not like this is, um, kind of a turnstile. Britain can just sort of walk back in the way from, from where it came. Mm. I think it, there, there is definitely a trust deficit and, and look, the block is pretty popular to a lot of other people. They may be looking more to those, those countries first. Finally, there, there's there's one thing everyone is hesitant to talk about, even more than Brexit. It's like Candyman. Everyone thinks if they utter its name, it will reappear. But could it be that we are seeing the return of COVID? Cases have really jumped up in the last few weeks. There was a 40% increase, then a 20-odd percent increase, then another 40% increase in COVID cases. Might we see some more long-term strategies come into play? Might masks make a return in certain settings? Might people start to think a little bit more seriously about mixed working models? What do you think, Yasmin? I mean, I, I guess there's a difference between what I think should happen and what I think actually will. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I okay, think Okay, tell the, us what you think yeah, should happen <laughs> <sure>. first. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly that the R number, which I think is 1.4 was the last I saw it, is, yeah. is pretty concerning. And, and even it's, it's prompted me, I found myself after a long while returning to that sort of state of fear, like, do I attend that big event tonight? Is it worth the risk if I know I have other things yeah. going on? Yeah. I, I mean, I think these are things that experts called for. I mean, the very basic stuff you can do is return of masks in crowded, enclosed places. Um, obviously, uh, kind of boosters, I, I think, are, 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 are you know, we can foreseeably see those happening in the autumn and beyond, potentially. Obviously, I mean, I think the bare minimum, I mean, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll rewind a bit and say that what is reassuring is that we know exactly what we need to do, because we've been through all of this before, right? It's just a matter of actually doing it. And, and, and I think those are two things. Another baseline thing, which I'd hope after two and a half years, we've learned this, but in case it needs repeating, if you are sick, if you are feeling unwell, just stay home. I know that's so much more easily done for people like me, who I'm currently speaking to from my kitchen table, but you know, allowing people to stay home, especially employers, if they're feeling unwell. These are kind of the basic things that I think would hopefully make a difference. At present, of course, we haven't really heard anything, I think, from the government on this. Um, I don't think that the cases are so high that perhaps it's exceeding their expectations of what we'd be dealing with right now. But of course, you know, it's summer, people are traveling, there's a lot more movement. I think, unfortunately, that the expectation, and I'm saying this as someone who has friends who are getting it for their second or even third times, is that you should sort of brace yourself for potentially kind of running into COVID again, if you haven't, um, mm. if you have already, and if you haven't, so I, I know for me personally, like I have travel plans coming up, I have you know big events, and I'm sort of now trying to weigh. What's your, and I'm kind of, I'm doing sort of what I always do in this case. Like I started wearing, you know, I, I sort of relaxed a bit on the mask wearing, obviously, because everyone did. But now when I'm back on the crowded. And also was, because it's warm, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like it's completely uncomfortable. I get to wear a KN95 whilst you're like in the beating, you know, in, in sort mm. of a very hot crowded tube as I was over the weekend. But even in that scenario, I felt, you know what? I'm just for my own peace of mind. I'm just going to do this so I don't get sick. Because I, I, I will say I did have a cold recently and that was annoying. And if you can avoid that, and ideally COVID, that's, that's probably not a bad thing. Hmm. I, I would direct listeners to an excellent piece you wrote recently, The Atlantic, about how other countries are not rushing back to the office 
um, generally speaking, there's a there's a mixed reaction to that, and maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe maybe we need to start looking at technological solutions and start to think about who needs to be where rather than who would like to be there if we're Jacob Rees-Mogg. What I learned from reporting out that piece is that the future of work is definitely flexible. I mean, it has nothing to do with, what was it that Johnson said? Cheese and whatever that prompts people to stay home or, or, <laughs> or causes them to lose faith. It has nothing to do with that. I think people just, they've they've had a taste of the flexible lifestyle and they're, they're not going to give it up. So uh, we got to And I think it. employers have as well. And they've seen it can be productive and it can reduce their costs. So um, I think the government is fighting a losing battle on that. And that's Start Your Week. Yasmin, thank you so much for getting up early. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thanks for joining us. We've had a lot of new listeners to the podcast in the past couple of weeks. So if you're just discovering The Bunker, don't forget to follow us on your favorite app. And if you want to help us keep going and expanding, you can support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes for early episodes, merchandise and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow for the panel show. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreu with Yasmin Sirhan. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>